verses 12 through to verse 18 focusing particularly on verse 18 blessed is the one who perseveres under trial once he's been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust then when lust is conceived it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death do not be deceived my beloved brethren every good thing given and every perfect thing is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shift in shadow in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures so just read verse 18 again what we're looking at this morning in the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures God bless his word as we consider that just in a moment please be seated let's come again to God in prayer Father as we now consider your word together again we pray that you will help us by the power of your Holy Spirit within each individually that we will understand that we will learn that we will grow that we will apply the truths of your word to our lives again through that same power through your Holy Spirit who is our helper our comforter our, our sustainer and I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory Amen <coughs> Now that verse there that I want to think about this morning, James chapter 1 verse 18, it's a, it shows us really in, in a very simple way the meaning of new birth, the meaning of salvation, what it actually means to be a Christian. It tells us a few things, it says, of his own will he gave us new birth through the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So you've got three things there, it's of his will that he gave us birth and he did it through the word of truth and he did it in order that we would be the first fruits of creation so there's a number of things going on in that verse now in the Old Testament we are told that we need to be holy for the Lord God is holy and we see the same in the New Testament Peter says for example exactly the same be holy for the Lord our God is holy now that means, in order to enter into the presence of God, in order to have any relationship with God at all, in order to have that relationship that was broken in the garden restored, in other words, in order to be a Christian, you have to be holy. I'll let that sink in for a moment, because that might concern you a little bit, because uh, in order for us to have any relationship with God, we must be set apart from sin. We must be righteous and that means we have a problem in fact we have a huge problem because we're not holy in fact we're far from holy we're not righteous we're sinful we don't always think right speak right act right or do right and it's even worse than that for the majority of the people in this world because even though all people are in that same situation nobody's holy nobody's right with God 
For the most part, the people of this world don't even realise it. They don't even understand that they're not righteous. In fact, they don't even willingly agree the diagnosis of the Bible, in other words, the diagnosis of God, that they are sinful. So the people of this world have a twofold problem. First of all, they're not holy, therefore they're far from God, and on a direct route to hell. That's the result of not having a relationship with God, as it makes it very clear in the Bible. Incidentally, Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about love, uh, because of his love. But secondly, worse than that, they don't even recognise the need for holiness, or the absence of it in their lives. And even if they do recognise it, as we saw last week, even if they do understand that they're not holy, they usually blame somebody else, or some situation in their life. And that's what we were thinking of, as I say, last week. We saw last week that people often push their responsibility of their own sinfulness onto God. We looked at verses 13 to 18, we saw that we have no one to blame but ourselves. James makes it very clear. We are the problem. God's not the problem. We are the problem. We are responsible for our own sin. We can't blame God, and we can't say, well, it's because he created me this way. It's our problem. God actually created us holy, and it was our sin that broke that. So James shows us, as we saw last week, how God cannot have any part in our sinfulness, either directly or indirectly. So then, to sum up so far, people have to be holy to have a relationship with God. We see that in the Old and the New Testament. But they're not holy. Therefore, they cannot have a relationship with God. And James makes it clear, as I say in verse 13 to 18, you can't blame anyone else but yourself for your sin. You can't blame anybody else for the fact that you're not holy and that you are far from God. The situation is our fault and our responsibility. Now we also saw last week in verse 13 that James says the nature of evil demonstrates that you can't blame God for sin. No one can say that when they're tempted that they're tempted by God because God can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt anyone. We saw that. You can't blame God for evil because God and evil are mutually exclusive. He has nothing to do with evil. We also saw in verse 14 that you can't blame God for your sin because of the nature of humankind. The problem we saw is within us. It comes from within. It doesn't come from outside. Obviously outside will tempt you, but it comes from within. The outside temptations draw out something that's already within you. Then we saw in verse 15 and 16 that James talks about the nature of lust. Lust, when it conceives, brings forth sin. And we saw that it's a process. It starts up here in your mind and there's no point trying to sort out the fact that you're sinful when you've actually done it or trying not to do something you've got to start with your mind if you want to overcome a particular sin if you want to stop doing something that is a, that's grown into a habit because that's how sin works it will become a habit eventually you have to start with the way that you think that's why it says be careful how you think your life is shaped by your thoughts your sins start there then in James 17, 1 verse 17, he discusses the nature of God. And he says every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. That never varies. In other words, you can't blame God for your sin because his nature is to give only good things. He wouldn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to sin. And then we come to verse 18. Because what James does in verse 18, he sort of sums up the whole argument. 
by talking about the nature of what we call regeneration or, or conversion. And he shows us that God does not lead us into sin because God wants to give us a life to be like him. And that's what we mean by regeneration. So the purpose of regeneration, the purpose of conversion, is to give us a birth, a new birth, into a new life. That means it's to create us to do good, not evil, to give us the power over sin. So God definitely is not involved in our sin because he wants the opposite and he's converting us, transforming us, regenerating us only to do good. He only gives good gifts, it says. And he only produces new life. He only produces righteousness, a new creation. So all of those things that we saw last week point to the fact that God cannot directly, or even indirectly, James makes it clear, you can't blame him indirectly, be the source of sin. God is not tempting us, he cannot tempt us, he does not tempt us. Now this morning I want to look at verse 18 in that light. This verse, as I've already mentioned, discusses the matter of regeneration, new birth, salvation, conversion. There are many different words that we could use. And James introduces us to this subject of regeneration in connection with all that I've just said. He's using regeneration as another example, another way to show us that God doesn't lead us into sin, in other words. Rather than leading people into sin, God regenerates us. He creates us new. He leads us out of sin into a new life. And that would be totally inconsistent with any thought of leading us, obviously, into sin. He's recreating us away from sin. Now keep in mind as we think about this, that everyone in this world, including us, is sinful. Filled, the Bible says, with lust. Lust produces sin. Sin begets death. In other words, everyone, apart from Jesus Christ, that's ever been born, is born sinful is born far from God, is born not holy. To give us a clear understanding of that, if we look in Romans chapter 3, the end of verse 9 says, Jews and Greeks, in other words everyone, is under sin. Everyone who's ever been born is under sin. And Paul goes on to show this by quoting an Old Testament passage, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Notice how he says that. There's none righteous, and then he just he says extra, just to make sure, just in case you, or you, or you, or you, are thinking, well, apart from me, he says, no, not one. Not even you. Nobody. Not one human being who's ever been created is righteous. Nobody, he says, obeys the will of God. Nobody, he says, even understands. Nobody comprehends that which God requires. Nobody, he says, even seeks God. This is the opposite of all those seeker-sensitive churches that are saying, you know, you know, all you've got to do is give people what they want because they're all seeking God. Therefore, you just give them what they want and then they'll all come to God. That's rubbish because the Bible is very clear. Nobody understands. Nobody even seeks God. People seek sin. Just look at your own life. And if you're honest about it, that's true. It says in John 3 verse 19, Jesus speaking the words, Men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. And then in Romans chapter 3, Paul goes on to describe the nature. He says, their people with their tongues use deceit. There's poison of snakes under their lips. In other words, a person's sinfulness is, is basically revealed in their conversation and what they say. It always comes out in the end. 
There's mouth that's full of cursing, bitterness and criticism. Their feet are in a hurry to shed blood. There's destruction and misery in all their ways. He, he paints a very blunt definition of sinful people, people without God. And he says in verse 19, the whole world comes under this. And there's no way, he says in verse 20, that they can be justified. No way that anyone can do to make themselves right with God. Absolutely nothing anyone can do to restore the relationship with God. You can't do it by keeping some rules. You can't do it by obeying laws. Even if those laws are the laws of God. Which might make you think a bit. The laws of God, you see, were not produced to give life. They were produced to give you a knowledge of sin so that you would go to the one who can give you the life. The laws do not give you the life. Obeying laws do not give you righteousness. So that's a definition of humankind. And it's very bleak. If you look at it, it could be very concerning in Romans 3. We see the same in other passages. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sin. Dead. So far then we know everyone's sinful. Everyone's far from God. Nobody's holy. Therefore, they cannot have a relationship with God. They are lost. We also know that in order to have a relationship with God, we have to be holy. Holiness is the absolute condition for acceptance and fellowship with God. And we add to that the eternal problem that many people don't even recognise that they're not holy and far from God. Which is another problem. And even if they do... They tend to blame God or other circumstances for the fact that they are sinful. They tend to pass off the responsibility and they are therefore cut off from God. Now all of this leads us to a a monumentally, eternally important question. What can be done to help people in this horrendous situation? What can be done to change the situation? What do people need? We see that external changes are not enough. You can't just simply decide to obey the law of God and make your own way out of this situation. That can't be done. You can't give yourself a new life. It says you are born spiritually dead. If you're dead, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. You're dead. Obviously. What you need is to be recreated. In the words of Jesus, what you need is to be born again. You need a new heart, you need a new inner person, you need a new life principle, you need to be born again. Because if you're dead, there's only one answer. You have to be born again, obviously, just logically. You've got to start right again from the beginning, you need a brand new life. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about new birth, regeneration, when we talk about being a Christian, it's not about adding something to your life. It's not about adding something to the old life. It's about a total, a complete transformation. To enter into a relationship with God, you have to be a new person. You have to go back from the start and start all over again and be born again into a new life. And that's something, as I say, because you're dead spiritually, that you cannot do. You can't say to a dead person, oh, you know, if only you'd be born again, you'd be fine. If you just come back, you know, you could stand there all day, all week, all month, for years. Saying that, nothing is going to happen. They are dead. 
And spiritually it's exactly the same. You can't say to a spiritually dead person, you know, you need to do something about that, you need to make yourself born again. There's nothing they can do to change that. And that's exactly what we're told in the Bible. We can't do it. We need somebody else to do it for us. It's not just in the New Testament. That's also in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, for example, says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. God is saying through Jeremiah, everyone's wicked. And then he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? He's making a point. The answer is, no. And he's saying, really, you're all sinful, you're all wicked, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't change your life. What you need is a total inward transformation by God. Then in chapter 31, verse 31 and following, we find the answer. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. And then he says, and here's the answer, I'll make this new covenant, I'll put my law in their inward parts, I will write it in their hearts. Then he says, I will be their God, and I, they will be my people. I'm going to get inside them. And change them from the inside out is what he's saying there. In other words, they can't do it on their own. It has to be done by God. People have to have an inward change at the very core of their being. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the natural person, in other words, the the non-Christian, everyone who's ever born, does not accept the things of God. That's why you shouldn't be surprised when the world outside says, no, you can't really believe that particular verse, you can't believe this verse, you can't do what the Bible says, you can't actually follow what God says. They don't accept it, they don't want it, they don't want to listen. It says, it is foolishness to them. In fact, more than that, they cannot understand it. They can't even understand it. So there's no point saying you've got to follow that verse. All you need to say is you've got to be saved. Then tell them they've got to follow that verse. And it says, these things are spiritually discerned. They do not understand. The term natural means all humans who do not have the Holy Spirit, all non-Christians, all unbelievers. They're all spiritually dead. And the corpse doesn't respond to anything. So what do they need? They need a new birth, a transformed new life. And as I said, nobody can do that themselves. But the good news is, Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin... He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness and he restores the relationship. We don't. It's not because we've been good or we've followed any rules. We should then be good and we should follow rules after that. But he's the one doing it, not us. He restores the relationship. If we accept him as Lord and Saviour and confess that truth, we are made acceptable to God, the relationship is restored and we are resurrected from the dead. We're born again into a new life. It says in Romans 6 that when you put your faith in Jesus you die and then you rise and walk in newness of life. Romans 6 is talking about baptism as well, that you, you go down into the water, it's like you're going down into the grave, symbolically Showing that you have died to your old self, you come up out of the water, rising in the same way that Jesus rose again, it says in Romans 6, rising to newness of life. Symbolic, but that's the point. That's what every person has to have, newness of life. The old life is gone, the new life comes. It says in Ephesians 4 verse 24, you've put on the new person, you created in righteousness and true holiness. 
It's a complete recreation. The best and most graphic illustration of this is found in the encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now Nicodemus came to Jesus one day. As I say, read about it there in John 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He's the one stood at the front leading the people. Not just in the synagogues, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. He's one of the main leaders. He might have been one of the most prominent than any other teacher in all Israel. Because in verse 10 Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So Jesus says, the. So Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus and he says, We know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do the miracles that you do except that God was with him. Now notice, he doesn't ask a question. He doesn't say what's in his heart. However, Jesus reads his heart. And Jesus then answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't even ask, because Jesus knows what he really wants. And Jesus says in response to that, Truly I say to you, verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now he's saying this to the prominent leader in Israel. One of the men who stood at the front, leading the people in the temple, leading them spiritually. And he's saying, if you don't get born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now that must have been a slap in the face to Nicodemus because he is one of the greatest leaders in Israel, spiritually. But Jesus knew what was in his heart. So there's a man, the teacher in Israel, Pharisee, part of the religious establishment. He had it all going for him religiously. He's the one who's leading the people spiritually. He's the one who should know all the answers. He's the one who tells the people how to get to God. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. You need to change. In other words, you're not on the way to heaven. But he must have known that. He must have known that he'd truly not entered into the kingdom of God. How did he know? Because there were, obviously there was nothing inside of him that was confirming that. So Jesus then answers the question that he doesn't even ask. What do I do to get into the kingdom of God? That's the question that Jesus answered. What do I do to get into the kingdom of God? And the implication was, I'm very religious, I study the law, I live by the code of the Old Testament, I'm ethical, I'm trusted, I'm very respected. In fact, I'm the teacher in Israel. What more do I need to add to all of that to get into the kingdom of God? What more do I need to do? And Jesus said, nothing. You don't add anything. Forget that. You need to start again. You have to be born again. So Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Now, Nicodemus was not asking about physical birth. He's an intelligent man. He knows what Jesus is doing here. He knows that Jesus is using an analogy. He didn't really think that he could go back into your mother's womb and be born again. Nicodemus understood that. He's simply picking up on the same use of a veiled language, this metaphor. So Nicodemus just joins in with the metaphor. What he's really saying is... How does somebody, so many years steeped in religion, so many years following the one court, so many years as a Pharisee, a rabbi, a teacher of the law, ever go back, undo all of that, and start all over again? How on earth can I do that? If you've ever witnessed to an Orthodox Jew of any years, you'll understand the problem. How could he unravel his lifelong pursuit of religion accepting that it was all a waste of time and start again 
That's what's in the mind of Nicodemus. How can I do that? Also, how could I accept all that I've been doing my whole life as a religious leader, stood at the front of the congregations, except that that's not enough? How could I accept all this religious activity as being a waste of time? How could I accept even that the whole religious system at that time was false and corrupt and did not lead anybody to God? How can I accept that? My whole life has been dedicated to this. Remember, he's one of the most esteemed leaders of the religious system. If he's not going to heaven, nobody's going to heaven by all that they do. If he's not going by all that he does, nobody's got a chance. How can I do that? And Jesus again says, you can't. You can't. You can't do it. It has to be done, he says, by water and the Spirit. In other words, it has to be done by a power that's outside of you, Nicodemus. It's not what you do. Now what does that mean, water and the Spirit? Well actually it's a reference taken from Ezekiel chapter 36. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in terms that he would understand. This is a religious leader, he knows his Old Testament inside out. He knows exactly what Jesus is saying. So Jesus goes back to Ezekiel 36. We see in verse 25 and 26, I will pour clean water upon you, I will make you clean, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Water and the spirit. It's a sovereign act by God. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, firstly you must have a sovereign cleansing by God. Secondly, you need his Holy Spirit. In other words, you need a sovereign salvation that comes from outside of you. You're not doing anything, Nicodemus. It's not what you do, it's what God is going to do in you. You need to be born of the water and the Spirit. So he takes him right back to Ezekiel 36. You need a sovereign cleansing that comes from God, that comes from outside. You need a new life. You need a new heart. Why? Well, he continues in John 3 verse 6. If you try to do it on your own, that which is born of the flesh will just reproduce itself. There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus, to change that. But what is born of the Spirit produces Spirit. That makes it very clear. Jesus is saying it's something that's going to happen from outside. He even says the wind blows where it wants. You hear the sound. You can't tell where it comes from, where it goes. So it is, he says, with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying there is, this is up to the Holy Spirit. It's not up to you, Nicodemus. It's nothing to do with you. The Holy Spirit, he says, moves where he wills. He gives new birth to whom he wills. To the agency of the Holy Spirit, he gives a new life. That's just what Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 7 says. I would give them a heart to know me. See the same in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. All things have passed. Behold, everything has become new. So salvation, regeneration, is God sovereignly coming down by his grace and totally changing that sinner and then putting his Holy Spirit into that person and then they are born again. Planting the Holy Spirit in their life. That's the purpose of regeneration. Now back to James. I want to ask four questions just to finish with about regeneration from James chapter 1 verse 18. What is it first of all? What is this regeneration? We've just seen a person can't know God without holiness. Nobody's holy, people don't even recognise that they're holy, and even if they do, they usually blame God. 
we're still, there's nothing that anybody can do to change that. So how is anyone ever going to change the need and intervention by God? God by his Holy Spirit comes into your life, he washes away your sin, he plants a new life in you, and then he gives you his Holy Spirit who lives within you from that moment onwards. This is why God's people accept God's word. You can't not if you've got the Holy Spirit within you. And it doesn't matter what that world out there says to you, that will make no difference. Because you are energised by God's Holy Spirit. That's what you call regeneration. So question one, what's the nature of it? It's God giving us new birth. We're not the same anymore. We're totally different. We don't live the same way. We don't act the same way. We don't think the same way. Yes, sometimes we'll drift back into our old self, but the Holy Spirit will then drag us back again. And we will repent. And God considers us holy. That's a total transformation. In fact, it says in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, we become partakers partakers of the divine nature. Now that's something, isn't it? We become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, God gives us his life, his self, his righteousness. That's why he considered us righteous. Not because of our righteousness, we don't have any. He gives us his We haven't received it all in fullness, one day we will. But for the moment, we are a new creation. Who does it is a second question. Well, we know John 3 verse 18, uh, God the Father, obviously. God the Father does it in our lives, it wouldn't be any other way. How is a dead person going to give himself life? You could do what you like to a dead person, you could prod them, you could shout at them, nothing is going to happen, has to come from the outside. The source of this new life is God. Only God does it. John 1 verse 12 and 13. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Even to those who believed in his name. Then it says we are born not of the blood. In other words, it's not physical. Not of the will. In other words, it's not up here either. Not of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. In other words, it's all to do with God. No child has ever been born in the world decided to be born. If you have children, they didn't decide to be born. You decided that they would be born. They didn't have a choice. It's strictly the decision of the parents, not the unborn children. And Jesus says, he uses the idea of birth as analogous to being a Christian. He says it's like birth. In other words, you've got nothing to do with it. No one comes to me, he says, except the Father draws them. You say because God predetermined in eternity to save you. John puts it this way, we love him because he first loved us. John says in 1 John 3 verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. You can't even think of an adjective to describe it. It's indescribable. He just says, what manner of love. You can't even come up with an adjective. So what's regeneration? It's God recreating us. Who does it? God does it. Third question, how does it happen? It says, of his own will he begot us with the word of truth. That's how it happens. It's literally by truth's word. What's the word? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17 verse 17, the word is truth. The Bible, what God says. That's why it's so important to accept and obey all God commands. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will accept my word. Because that's how you become a Christian in the first place. You can't not. God regenerates us, he cleanses us through the power of his word. The Bible 
is far, 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 I don't know how long we've got, but I could keep on saying far and far, far, for, for a long, long time, more important than you think, and you are Christians, let alone what the world thinks. The Bible is very, very important. We are even saved through what it says in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, Paul commends the Thessalonians because they responded to the preaching of God's word. He says, For this cause we thank God without ceasing, because you received what? The word of God, which you heard from us. You received it not as the word of men, but that in truth, the word of God, which effectively is working in you that believe. The word of God works within a believer. We have God's Holy Spirit, therefore we accept his word. So firstly, so God sovereignly moves to save us. We then respond to the word of God in faith. How does it happen? It happens through the word of God. That's what it says here. Uh, Titus 3 verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's not by doing things. It's about God's word. Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How shall they call upon him if they have not believed? In other words, how are people going to turn to God if they don't believe? How will they believe in him if they haven't heard? So how are they going to even believe if they haven't heard it? And how will they hear, basically, unless somebody tells them? And what do they need to hear? God's word. Because then it says in verse 17, Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word. The word. Hearing the Bible. That's how important the Bible is. So far then, God sovereignly saves us by moving into his life. He recreates us. And that takes place. A person comes to hear and understand the gospel. They hear the Bible. It transforms them. God does it by his own sovereign will. Why does he do it though? The final question. Why does he do this? Well obviously he wants us to, to worship him. He wants us to, to um, honour him. But why does he do it, does it say here... Verse 18, in order that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What does that mean? Why does he save us in order that we will be the first fruits of his creation? What's he saying? The ramifications of this are absolutely amazing. God wants a new kind of creation. We, as Christians, are just the first fruits of that. What are first fruits? Well, in the Old Testament, you plant a crop. When the crop starts a fruit, you take the first fruit, the, the best, and you give it to God. And that's your tithe, in the sense, your giving. Today we don't plant crops, we earn money, we come to church, we put money in the plate. We, we give in that way. In the Old Testament they used to give of their crops. And the first fruits were the first, the best. Full crop that's coming later, you just give God the first. And that's what James is saying here. We are the first... The best of a crop that's going to come later. What is the crop that's coming later? Well, I don't know if you've realised that if you've been coming um, in the past, when we used to have uh, Bible study on a Monday, we were looking at Revelation. This world is going to be transformed. This world is going to be recreated. This world is going to burn up and God will recreate it in his own liking. There'll be a new creation, uh, men, women, hills, valleys, grass plants, everything, God will make a new heaven and a new earth. That's the coming new creation. Hasn't happened yet. One day that's going to happen. And we are the first evidence of that. That's what he's saying here. We're just the first fruits of what's going to happen 
one day Paul says in Romans 8 the world doesn't even know what we're going to be yet we're still veiled in flesh waiting for that manifestation when it becomes clear to everyone what we really are nobody knows it but we are the beginning of what's going to happen one day we're just the first look at that new creation that will come after the second coming and if you want to know what the future is going to be like it's going to be like us all new on the inside we are the first fruits of that final recreation it says in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning it's waiting so this planet it knows that that's going to happen one day nature knows so what's regeneration? it's a recreation making it new from the inside who does it? God but he does it sovereignly how does it happen? it happens when we hear and believe God's word and then God mixes his faith and transforms us why does he do it? because we are living examples of where this world is headed when he recreates it all this makes it absolutely obvious that there's no way that God is responsible for your sin that's the whole overriding point that James is making here so when you sin don't blame God put the blame where it should be in yourself that's what it means to be born again and therefore we have much to praise God now next week we're going to continue in James chapter 1 verse 19 to 26 I'm just going to consider how important God's word is how important God's word is we've had a little bit of a glimpse of it today but he continues on in verse 19 to 26 to just show us how important it is not just to be hearers of the word not just to hear it but to accept it and most importantly to do it read yourself James chapter 1 verse 19 to 26 we'll look at that next week let's come to God in prayer Father we thank you for your word in our lives which literally transforms us it causes us to be saved in the first place faith comes from hearing your word you've made that very clear but it does more than that it's more important even than that because it literally transforms us day by day it renews us it causes us to grow it causes us to mature help us as the Old Testament declares the psalmist declares to value it beyond silver and gold every last word every last letter every last dot as Jesus himself says because it's that important because it is literally our means to worship you as you should be worshipped and that is our reason for our existence and we thank you for that Amen